Some time ago, we were holding a series of meetings out in Texas, and a young lady came for counsel. And Brother Steve and Brother David and I were there together in our motorhome, and she said one of the problems she had was witnessing. And I'll never forget Brother Steve's reply. He said, Sister, the reason you have a problem in witnessing is you don't have anything to witness for. You've never had an experience in Jesus. Thirty minutes later, she walked out of that motorhome with something to witness, to witness to Jesus Christ. I'd like to share with you some of the steps that I personally took in witnessing for Jesus. And more or less, these are the same seven steps that sinners have taken generally through the ages. The first step is a picture of Jesus. In Isaiah, the sixth chapter, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord, and then followed the call to witness. In the first chapter of Jeremiah, he said, the Lord talked to me, and then followed his witness. The apostle Paul said, he heard the voice of God, and Jesus talked to him, and he captured a picture of the crucified, and then he went out to witness. When I was six years of age, in a little old farmhouse upstairs in my bedroom, mother was sweeping the floor, and she was telling me the simple story of Jesus. I can't describe what that story meant to me. She told the story from the time that he was a little babe in Bethlehem, with the stars that twinkled over that city. On through his early life, on into his ministry, and then his final trials, his famous march to Calvary, amid insult and mockery. And then I saw him strung up between heaven and earth. And my friends, Mother's simple description of the love of Jesus Christ broke my heart. And the love of Jesus converted me. And that is the first, the first step, a picture of Jesus. The second step is the response to that picture of Jesus. I said, Mother, what shall I do? And she turned me to 1 John, the first chapter, and the ninth verse, and it says, If we confess our sins, let's quote it together, shall we? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I knelt down with Mother, and I confessed that I was a sinner. And I just believed that the Lord had forgiven and cleansed me. And I reached up in simple childlike faith and accepted his cleansing. That is the second simple step. Sometime after this, the next step was taken. It was at the midnight hour. I dreamed that my brother Lester, who was only two, two years older than I, was out in the ocean waves drowning just near shore. I was standing on the home shore, and I saw his body cupped in one of these angry waves, and the waves between him and me were very high and furious. I saw his face looking at me in a most pleading fashion. And I determined I must save him. And then I realized these angry waves were between him and me. How in the world could I ever get to him? And while I was trying to figure some way by which I could get to him, and my whole soul was plowed up in agony for him, the tears rolling down my cheeks, I suddenly awakened. 
And then a thought voice, the voice of the Holy Spirit, spoke to me and said, Son, you have brothers and sisters all over the world. They're perishing in the waves of sin. I want you to go out and throw out the lifeline and save them. You'll be the instrument in my hands to rescue them. And I remember I looked up in the face of the Lord and I said, Lord, I've never been able to do anything right. I was the bullhead of the family, always doing things in the wrong way. Lord, I've never been able to do things right and around the home. I've tried, but I've failed. How in the world, Lord, could I ever do this? And the thought voice of my Lord spoke and said, I'll teach you. I'll show you how you can be my instrument. And with the tears rolling down my cheeks, I said, Lord, if you will show me, I shall be happy to, because I was thinking of my drowning brother and the agony and the, and the sympathy that I had for him. And that same sympathy went out toward all who would be drowning in the waves of sin. And he said, you will go and I'll be with you. Now this was my response to his call. The call was the third step and my response was the fourth step. As later on I read of the story of Isaiah, I found it was the same. He said, I saw the Lord and then I responded and I said, woe is me for I am undone. There he was confessing his sins to the Lord and then he heard a voice saying, whom shall we send? Who will go for us? And he took the fourth step saying, here am I, Lord, send me. I found that Jeremiah passed through the same general steps. I found that Paul did the same. All of us sinners must go through those steps. We must first see the Lord. We must understand his immutable, eternal, gracious love, or we have nothing to share. The fifth step that I took was that of intercession. As I'd walk down the little dusty roads out there in the country, I would look at the houses on the right hand and on the left. And I would say, I wonder if these people are ready to meet the Lord. My whole soul went out in eagerness to tell them about Jesus Christ and how he forgives and cleanses. He's preparing a home for us in glory land. He wants to, us to be with him eternally. Oh, what can I say to these people? What can I do? And it went on through the academy, on through college, and it's never left. And I found this, my friends, that as we intercede, the Lord answers. The prophet Isaiah said, God wondered that there was no intercessor. This drowning brother was in the academy with me. We had a home, our parents had a home just on the border of this academy. And we could see from where we lived, the academy grounds, the large trees and some of the buildings, one day I realized, and in fact I'd realized it for several days, several weeks, that my brother Lester, this drowning brother of years before, was now going through a very tumultuous experience. And it seemed to me, as his younger brother, that there wasn't very much sympathy extended by the part of, on the part of older Christians who should have known better, you know. And my heart went out to him, my drowning brother. Now, he apparently was drowning in the waves of discouragement. One day when father and mother were out of the place, out uh, in their business, my brother was out somewhere, I don't know where, so discouraged. I slipped upstairs in our little bedroom and I fell on my knees. Now a boy in high school. My whole prayer was for my brother Lester. 
Lord, he's getting discouraged. Dear Lord, he's, he's wandering. Dear Lord, he's going to give up unless you send angels to his rescue. And I fell on my knees, and as I prayed, I, I prayed for five minutes. I prayed for ten minutes. Then fifteen, twenty, thirty. And about the time I had reached thirty minutes, something seemed to speak to my soul. If you will continue your intercession, he may come right into the house. He may actually come upstairs. He might even come right in the room where you're praying and you'd see the value of intercessory prayer. And it seemed just like the Lord was saying it. And I said, I'm going to stay here, and I'm going to be praying. And I prayed for 40 minutes. Then I heard the back door that led onto the, the academy camp, campus. I noticed the door open. And as I was there, as still as a mouse, I wanted to know, is it dad and mother who've come home? No, it was the footsteps of only one person. I stayed on my knees and I thought, is it really going to happen? Is God going to reward this intercessory prayer in this remarkable way? I stayed on my knees and I heard the little old latch to the stairway door. You remember those little old latches? I heard it move. My brother was coming up the stairway. He then came through the narrow hallway. The door opened where I was praying. And my brother walked in. I stayed on my knees. I didn't want to. I wanted to leap to my feet and throw my arms around him. But I stayed on my knees. Presently, he knelt beside me. He placed his left arm over my shoulder and his face up next to mine. And I want to tell you, my friends, the way he spoke. Glenn, were you praying for me? I said, yes, Lester. I was praying for you. My friends, that was the turning point in his life. God wants us to capture a picture of the love of Jesus Christ. He wants us to respond to his willingness to forgive. Then he calls us. Not everyone has a dramatic dream such as I had, but everyone is being called by the still small voice of the Lord saying, now will you witness to the love of Jesus Christ? You're just a sinner. You're saved by my grace. Will you tell others about a person? There are a lot of people, religionists, who can talk about things. But I want you to tell people about me. I want you to tell them that I'm your personal Savior. You don't need to go into the mistakes and sins of your life, but let them know that you're totally unworthy. And as I spoke to the demoniac who was saved, Jesus says, go home, tell your loved ones, what great things the Lord's done for you, how he's had compassion on you. That brother of mine, praise the Lord, became an ordained minister. He is still a minister at the age of 75. Hundreds upon hundreds of souls have found Jesus Christ through his ministry. I thank God for that step of intercessory prayer when I talk to the Lord alone. But then the next step is, and this is step six, is when we choose another individual to pray with us for someone else. As I went through academy days, no one that I recall ever suggested this. Yes, someone did. The Holy Spirit. You know, when you know how good the Lord is to you, when you realize how sinful you are, and what a wonderful price was paid for, for our salvation, we want to share it with others. 
And so when I would begin to get a little weak and a little trembly and spiritually a little down, I would look up a friend of mine in school, in the academy, in college. How are you today, Al? He said, Glenn, I'm not feeling well at all. I'm spiritually dull. Al, would you like to slip, out, slip away out in the woods, in the barn, or in a room in the, in the, in the, in the dormitory? And could we just be all by ourselves? And can't we pray together? Oh, Glenn, thank you so much. We'd kneel down together. Perhaps we'd read a promise from God's Word. And then I would pray for Al. Now, there were two of us praying together. There were times when the two of us, as I would pray for him, the two of us together would pray for a third person. As I was going through school, I had a tremendous list in my own personal intercessory prayer. I had a list of individuals for whom I was praying. The name of one was Lloyd Kuhn, one of my older brothers. He had lost his way. And I thank God through my own intercessory prayer and the prayer of others with me for my brother Lloyd Kuhn. When I became an ordained minister, it was my privilege to baptize my brother Lloyd and his wife and his son. Friends, when we take that step of intercessory prayer, it's followed by another step of selecting someone who will pray with us for someone else. And this is the supreme luxury of the Christian life, praying for someone else and then taking the seventh step of going to that person and communicating with that person. And I learned that there's a way to communicate in this, second, in this seventh step. And this seventh step is very, very important. I found how Jesus communicates his love. It's altogether different from that used by hundreds of thousands of professed Christians. There are a lot of professed Christians who feel that for them to communicate and to witness, they must give a Bible study on some doctrinal point. Now, the doctrines of the Bible are beautiful, friends, aren't they? They're wonderful. There's no doctrine of the Bible of what just thrills my soul. But the great longing of the human heart is not at first to know a doctrine. It's first to know whether God cares. Do you care, Lord? Maybe I've lost a loved one. Perhaps in the prime of life, maybe a little baby, an innocent baby. Maybe the honeymooners on their, on their honeymoon who are suddenly deprived of life. Lord, what's it all about? Do you care? So in the seventh step, we witness to people, we communicate to people the love of God. How did Jesus do it? You know, it's astonishing how Jesus communicated the love of God. And he is our example. There's no one like Jesus. And a lot of people have gained the impression that Jesus communicated God's love by sitting down, mainly giving Bible studies, per se. That isn't true at all. Let us notice how Jesus communicated the love of God. Now remember, he is the prime soul winner of all ages. Let's notice the first miracle that Jesus wrought in Cain of Galilee. It's found in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Uh, there was a marriage there. And following the marriage, they had a marriage feast. Now, Jesus only had three and a half years, you know, to carry on his whole ministry. That's not very long. You wouldn't think that, that the Lord of heaven, the creator of the universe, who only had 
three and a half short years of ministry would possibly have time to go to a wedding feast, would you? But he did. And what did he do when he was there? How did he communicate God's love? Oh, it's so different, I'm sure, from the way I would have. I'm sure that, uh, that after I've learned some of the Bible laws of marriage, if I hadn't known Jesus away, I'd have gone there at the wedding feast thinking, let's see, couldn't I somehow inject a little instruction? These kids need to know how to have a happy home. But you know, they didn't ask for that. You know, there are very few people who are, are just married who want any instruction on the home. <laughs> when I was married, one of my older brothers started telling me uh, how to have a happy home. And I thought to myself, if, if he had only realized this is my wife, this isn't his wife, this is my home, I'm going to be on cloud nine. But I found sometimes you get under cloud nine, you see. And, and so I would have gone to that marriage feast saying to these people, now I want to tell you how to have a happy home. He didn't do any such thing. There was another thing that really would have been in order, you'd think. When Jesus was baptized and immediately soon after was at this marriage feast, it was the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel's great prophecy. The 70th week was being introduced right then. My, being the great prophet of the ages, surely Jesus would give them something on that prophecy. Now, wouldn't he? Can you imagine? Jesus goes to this marriage feast. He gives them no instruction on the home. He gives them no instruction on the prophecies. Do you know what he does? He gives them 90 gallons of grape juice. <laughs> 90 gallons. Why? This was the best way that he could communicate to them the great truth that God up in heaven cares about you. The master mechanic of the ages is interested in man's happiness. Aren't you glad? And you know what the result was? The 11th verse of John 2 says, Thus Jesus manifested his glory. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is his character. He manifested, he showed, he revealed the character of God. What was the character of God? I care. I'm interested in your happiness. I want to see you happy. And it says in the same 11th verse, as he thus manifested what God is like, how much God cares, it says his disciples believed on him. What a missionary effort that was. What a way to communicate to people. You see, it didn't appear to mean very much, but he presented to them the very basis of witnessing. We witness to let men and women know that God still cares. He was spared his own son, spared him not but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And the result was they believed in him. Why? John 17 verse 3 says, This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Who is God? God is love. So Jesus based his witness on revealing to people that God loves us, that God is interested in our happiness in every area of life. You know to what extent that was successful? John the fourth chapter tells the story of how Jesus, after he left several months and came back to Cana of Galilee, there was a man who came over from Capernaum. This is found in John 4, verses 46 
to 54, a nobleman. He'd heard about Jesus, and he'd begun to realize that this man cares, and he represents a God who cares. So he walks from Capernaum over to Cana of Galilee. His son is in a coma, and he contacts Jesus. He doesn't have very much faith. In fact, he set up some false flags there, which Jesus took care of too. Jesus, at one o'clock in the afternoon, healed his son right on the spot. He didn't even wait till he could get there in person. Your son liveth. Now, Jesus could have given him quite a, quite a long Bible study, right? But the man wasn't ready for a, a theoretical Bible study. He wanted to know, does this man care about me? Does he care about my boy who is dying, to whom the doctors have given up? When he got back home the next day, for he didn't hurry because he believed Jesus, when he got back home the next day and his, his friends and the family and the servants came out just almost leaping for joy, they said, you know, one o'clock yesterday afternoon, your boy was healed. He said, I'm not surprised. But when he walks into the house and the family's re his family rejoices together, what was the result of Christ's method of communication? It tells us this man and his whole family fell down before God and gave their hearts to God. This is communicating the love of Jesus Christ. Why should a man be interested in where heaven is unless the God in heaven is interested in him? Who wants to be in the presence of a God eternally who's looking down his nose at him? He wants to be with a God whose highest desire is his happiness. This is only the beginning of the ministry of Christ. In John, the fifth chapter, we have another healing of Christ. He was at the pool of Bethesda. There was a man crippled for so long almost given up hope he had. And Jesus stepped over to where he was and told him that he could pick up his bed and he could walk and go on his way. He healed him right on the spot. You know, he could have said, friend, uh, before, I, before I heal you, I would like to give you a series of studies on health reform. <laughs> Wouldn't that have been wonderful? Health reform is a wonderful thing. Healthful living is a beautiful thing. But that man was interested in living right then. He was interested in, in gaining the, the, the little strength that he, that, that he had left and increasing it a little bit. So Jesus healed him on the spot, right on the spot. What was Jesus doing? He was communicating to him and all around and to us that God cares. So when we look up in the face of God and things don't go the way we think they ought to, we look to Calvary. That's where I looked at the age of six. And brother, sister, friend, don't ever forget that bleeding victim, Jesus Christ. It tells men and women that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Wouldn't you like to go out and witness to Jesus? Shall we pray? Dear Father in heaven, Thank you for the fabulous love of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, like the Apostle Paul, to say, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom I am crucified unto the world, the world unto me. Thank you in thy lovely name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse. 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.